Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. This episode is from a recent conference on the future of financial regulation. Today, we have Gray Center Co-Executive Director Adam White speaking with former FDIC Chairman Yelena McWilliams about her tenure at the agency and about banking regulation in general. Well, at a conference focused on the future of financial regulation, it's not a bad thing to pause and take a look at the present of financial regulation, and who better to talk with than a recent regulator? We're very lucky to be joined this afternoon by Yelena McWilliams. She is the recent chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. For that, she was a lawyer at the Federal Reserve, right? Um, Chief Legal Officer at Fifth Third Third Bank. Um, and now she is the managing partner in Cravath's new Washington office. She also leads Cravath's Financial Institutions Group. And so we're very lucky to be joined by her today for just a conversation about the current state of financial regulation, where we've been recently, and uh, where she thinks we might go next. FDIC chairs are always the subject of a lot of news coverage and news reports. I think it's safe to say you might be the first one to write the news reports yourself uh, with your widely read Wall Street Journal article. Um, but first, let's just start with the big picture. I mean, in a nutshell, I know it's a very, very broad question. How would you sum up the current state of bank regulation? Um, hi, everybody. It's great to be here with you today. Um, I will say it's um, unstable. <laughs> and uh, the reason I say that is because it used to be that the regulators were boring people, right? So they would pick these people who were just like boring people. And this used to be when you actually needed 60 votes to get somebody confirmed. You needed over 60 votes to get somebody confirmed. And so that all changed um, uh, for two reasons. Number one is that so little, uh, the countries are such a partisan divide that there is so little that can be get, uh, that can get through Congress and become law. Um, and number two is, if you recall, in the CFPB's early days, the CFPB director could not get confirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is such a thing that the president has a power to appoint somebody during a presidential recess. I mean, I'm sorry, congressional recess. And I also worked, I was chief counsel on the Senate Banking Committee, so I got to witness some, some of this firsthand. And so what happened is that uh, the, initial, the original director of CFPB could not get confirmed. The Republicans were claiming this is an a, uh, unconstitutional agency the way it was set up. And so uh, then the leader of the majority leader of the Senate, Harry Reid, decided to change the threshold for how many votes you need to get confirmed, and he changed it from 60 to 51. So what happens is if you have 60 vote threshold, you have to work on a bipartisan basis because really the system is set up so that no party controls more than 50 something votes, right? So if you, if you need to get to 60, you gotta get some of the votes on the other side. So you put up candidates that are more reasonable, you put up candidates that are you know, going to be open to different uh, political implications of, of their decisions, et cetera, and policy implications. And then when you move the threshold to 50, it's almost always that a party has 50 or 51 votes. And if there are a tie, if there's a tie, whoever is the vice president, whatever party the vice president belongs to gets to break the tie. So really what you have seen over the last few years is that people who probably would not have gotten confirmed before are now confirmed because they need 51 votes or you know they need below 60. And so when you ask me you know what is the state of banking regulation I think because politically so few things can get through Congress you're seeing regulators that are trying to expand their existing jurisdictions mm-hmm. and mandates to get new regulatory stuff done 
even though they don't necessarily have a super clear mandate from Congress to do that. Okay, well, on that point, and obviously this is the kind of issue that bounces around the Supreme Court, things like the major questions doctrine, it's one thing to say agencies are expanding their mandate because they're doing things that they've never tried before or they've never been asked to do before. But the statutes they're administering are written in extremely broad terms. And so often the agency's argument would be, and, and um, there's a good reason for arguing this, that we are doing something new because we're facing totally new challenges. The statute is broad enough to authorize what we're doing. And we're responsible for whatever the standard is, the public interest, safety, soundness, and security. Isn't that a good thing for agencies to take new development seriously? So it generally would be because the agencies are supposed to evolve with the evolution in, in the society and technological changes and everything else. Mm -hmm. Where it becomes a little bit dangerous is when the agencies take um, the, the, you know, the spear into their hands to like lead policy changes and force Congress's hand. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, for example, on um, something like the bank merger policy, which is an issue near and dear to my heart, um, we read. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, uh, and if you didn't, don't. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, frankly, Congress gave the regulatory agencies six statutory factors. And over the years, the interpretation of those six statutory factors to approve a merger um, has not changed quite a bit. You know, like you knew what the convenience and needs of the community are. You looked at the other factors and you decided if this merger, if, if, the, if the two entities in the merger context are able to satisfy this, the, the statutory factors, you vote for the merger because they met the law, mm -hmm. uh, the requirements of the law. And so now what you're seeing is that, you know, there are all kinds of things being thrown into that merger consideration. Uh, why? Because, frankly, of political pressures. And so it is kind of a, it's a good thing if the agencies are uh, evolving with the changing times. It is not a good thing if they're not, uh, if they're evolving in a matter, in a matter that's not accountable to their mandates and that's not transparent to the public. Well, in terms of changing times, let's just talk very briefly about some of the most recent developments. Uh, in our last panel, uh, Peter Wallison uh, made reference to uh, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. And I guess my question is, did those bank failures, did they confirm something that we already knew? Or is, are there new lessons to be drawn from that recent experience? So I would say that the failures of those banks confirmed one thing, it, it is that for all of the planning that the agencies, agencies have done over the past, you know, 12 years, since Dodd-Frank was 13 years, uh, it, it passed into law on July 21st, 2010, but who's counting? Um, the, uh, so what we have learned is that the, all of the, res, the living will plans, the resolution planning that was put in place, that was not utilized in this context. Mm -hmm. The second thing we learned, um, and, and you know, I'll, I'll leave it to the audience to decide if that's because the law is flawed, the implementation was flawed, or whatever else. Um, the second thing that we learned is that the way that uh, bank examination and supervision is done is very outdated. Mm -hmm. So basically, the agencies don't have anything close to real-time data on a on 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 different trends within a bank. And so I'll point you to the congressional hearing uh, of both uh, Vice Chairman Barr uh, at the Federal Reserve and Marty Grunberg at the FDIC. And when asked at a congressional hearing, when did you learn of issues with Silicon Valley Bank? Mm -hmm. The um, Vice Chairman Barr said um, Thursday morning. And Mr. Grunberg said uh, Thursday evening. And the bank was taken into receivership Friday morning. So 
that tells you that the real-time data, the, whatever information needs to flow. Now, meanwhile, people on Twitter knew something was going on because I was, I'm in private practice now, so this wasn't uh, me at the official, you know, chair of the Fed uh, position. I was getting calls four or five days earlier saying, is our money safe? Is our money safe? I, mm -hmm. I felt like public service announcement for the, for the four days before. So obviously there were people who knew something was going on. It just didn't happen to be the agency staff and it didn't make it to the, to the, to the top of the supervisory chain. Um, a moment ago, you mentioned uh, the new bank merger gu guidelines. Let's talk a little bit about bank mergers. How should we understand recent trends in bank consolidation, both uh, trends towards consolidation at the regional bank level and also among community banks? Um, what, what do you think is causing this? Is, are these good trends? What, if anything, should be done on the regulatory side? So, I will say some of you may remember, but then that depends how old you are, really. Uh, or how much you read. <laughs> uh, we used to have 30,000 banks in the United States, um, over 30,000 banks. Um, and by the way, each bank used to issue its own money <laughs> long time ago. Um, and so when, you, when we talk about you know, consolidation in the banking sector, 30,000 is obviously a large number. Um, I think we're down now to 40,000. 700, I think it's like, I tried to check numbers, but it's about 47 something, 47 and a change. Hmm. And I'm sorry for calling the 47 something change, but 40 some, 4,700 something. Yeah. When I came to the FDIC, there were 5,377 banks in existence, and that was June of 2018. So you can do the math, you can see that we have declined by about 600 in number, overall number. And what happened, the first year I was on the job, and this was when the economy was booming, the unemployment was at the highest, I mean, the lowest rate, uh, in recent history, the GDP growth was high. Um, like everything was looking, you know, smelling roses. We ended up having 220 banks merged into other banks in that first year. No bank failed, which I, I joke that I must be the most successful FDIC chairman ever because only eight banks. Uh, failed during my almost four years there. Um, you keep a scoreboard there for like the, the chairman over time? I really should keep a like scoreboard. The track and field records Because I'm school. thinking yeah. on a pro rata basis per year, that's like pretty good. Yeah. Um, the uh, Nobody will sing me praises, so I'll do it myself. Yeah. The the uh, um, And then, you know, in Washington, D.C., you take whatever metrics and data works for you, and you just sing yourself praises. That's I've learned that's how things work. So... Um, so, you know, 220 20 banks disappeared due to a merger with another bank. And that was when the economy was booming, booming, everything was going so well. And then you realize that a lot of times the smaller banks simply cannot compete with larger banks. They still have to do the same kind of a compliance. They have to do Bank Secrecy Act. They have to do anti-money laundering. They have to do IT security. They have to comply with consumer protection laws, safety and soundness, all of this stuff. And sometimes you encounter these banks, they have one branch. Mm -hmm. They have like 12 employees, one branch. And, you know, I, I would ask them something like, oh, who's your chief lending officer? Oh, it's Rose. Rose is also the clerk. <laughs> and Rose is, you know, the accountant. And you're like, okay, that's great. How, how are you even functioning, you know, with such a small staff, given all the compliance burdens? So I don't know what the correct number of banks in the United States is, the right number or right size. In the, the, but I do know that, you know, some of this is the economies of scale, but a large part of this is regulatory. You know, they simply are, it's, we usually say, so when I was on the, in the Senate, on the Senate Banking Committee, you know, you write legislation, you're like, oh, this is not supposed to be for banks below X threshold. And just, you can throw the threshold like 250 billion. It's a large number, right? Yeah. And then somehow it just trickles down. It just happens that, you know, the best practices become the de facto 
uh, expectation for these smaller banks. Yeah. Well, okay. On this point, I, I understand the, the the argument that uh, that this overhang of, of regulatory burdens. Uh, is more easily borne by the larger financial institutions than the smaller ones, and that's an argument I've made often before. I probably will continue to often make. But as you said, there are a number of private sector economic reasons for bank consolidation. Um, in this day and age, you know, we carry around our bank apps, uh, and it's if you are Wells Fargo, Bank of America, you're going to have a great. Uh, app there. If your bank is a small credit union mm. in Dubuque, Iowa, um, it's not going to be as as technological. So, what can you like allocate any kind of credit or blame for consolidation here? How much of it is the regulatory burden component, and how much of it is um, just economic forces and technological innovation? I think it's hard to put a percentage. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we tried to quantify this when I was on the Senate Banking Committee. We tried to quantify this a little bit when I was at the FDIC. The best you come up with is qualitative and anecdotal examples. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll share this because it's actually such a Norman, Norman Rockwell-esque story. But when I became the FDIC chairman, I realized I've never had a community bank account in the United States. On my second day, I, I came to the United States on my 18th birthday, and on my second day, I opened up a checking account with a very large bank. And I never really have been banked by the very banks that the FDIC regulates. So I talked to our supervisory staff at the FDIC, and I said, I need to open up an account with a community bank. I just feel like I should do that. So it needs to be in Virginia, because I live in Arlington. And it needs to be a good bank. So they, you know, they go look through the Camel's ratings and everything else. They come up with a good bank. Uh, and it just requires me to drive some distance. And so I do. I set up an appointment and I go to open up an account. And there are two lady tellers in the bank. And one of them says, oh, I said, do you have an appointment? I said, yes, yes, I'm here to open up a checking account. She says, come on over here. And, you know, they ask you all kinds of questions, including where do you work? And I said, well, I can't lie. I work at the FDIC. They said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a lawyer, which is not untrue, completely true. Uh, and she's like, oh, I'm just so glad you're not one of those compliance people. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I heard they can be pretty mean. <laughs> and then one of the two, two things happened where I was like, oh, this is such community banking story. And I ended up writing an American banker op-ed on this just to kind of a, uh, crystallize what community banking is. Uh, this, um, well, they needed to give me, she's like, do you want your um, ATM card? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> like, how else? They didn't have an online banking presence. Yeah, 2018, right. they did not have an right. online banking presence. And I was like, well, how do I check my balance? And she's like, you call. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I call. She's like, would you like your, your you know, ATM card? We can mail it to you. And I was like, yeah. She's like, well, we only have ATMs in she tells me locations, but you can use it as a debit card. And I said, great. Um, and then she said, do, would you like a temporary card? You know, and I said, what do you mean by a temporary card? She's like, just your account number. And I said, sure. So she literally goes to one of those old IBM typewriters, types up a card, and she says, our examiners don't like us to use these. And I was like, oh, I wonder why. <laughs> and then she laminates the card. And I literally remember taking this, like, she's like, it's hot. And I took the card in my hands, and it's, like, still hot. And I remember, oh, my God, last time I had something like this was at Blockbuster. You know, I got a Blockbuster <laughs> card, and we you know what happened to Blockbuster. Yeah. So, so I do think there's, and, and then a, a, a man walked in, a father walked in with his uh, baby girl, a little girl, she was probably two or three years old. And the girl knew the teller's names, and the tellers knew the girl's name. And I'm like, oh, this is like so cool. Uh, 
And and the the lady who was opening up my account, she said, oh, she's been coming here since she was born. She always gets candy, and she insists whenever they drive by, they could be going to Costco for you know, doesn't matter. She wants to come by the bank <laughs> branch, and I was like, well, here's your future customer, you know. Yeah. So that's like when you talk about community banking, that's what it is, yep. and it's it's. Uh, so I think it's really hard to to quantify how a bank like that, a good bank, by the way, a bank like that yeah. can have. You know, an ability to compete at all yeah. with banks, you know, that frankly have the budget for their IT and compliance that is larger than like several of the agencies around here, budgets, yeah. annual budgets. Yeah. And, and just in the story you told, obviously, there's real virtues in those banks. They know their customers, that's for sure. And uh, so time's flying and we only have about 10 minutes left. And I do want to You have some, to speak very fast. Uh, I, I'm from Iowa. This is fast. <laughs> I go. Um, I'm going to ask maybe one more question okay. before I open it up. Um, and it is about um, your well-publicized departure from the from the FDIC. Um, it's publicized. I'm not sure how well it went. So yeah, you, well, it was well publicized, and you saw to it that it was well publicized. I'm teasing. Um, but normally, in arguments about the the oversight and control of agencies, for decades, the originalist, textualist, conservative argument has been that it's incredibly important for the president to have control over the agencies, including multi-member agencies, and, and the, the power to, to hire and fire. And of course, the FDIC is an exception, and it's particularly exceptional in that the chair itself has a term. It's not just at the pleasure of the president. I guess my question is, what's the case for the FDIC chairman having extraordinary protection from the presidential's um, power to hire and fire. Yeah. So th the way these agencies are usually set up, and this has been debated in the in the Supreme Court as well, um, is you either have a commission, um, and the commissioners or directors can only be fired for cause. Mm -hmm. And I so I, I mentioned I, I came to the United States. I'm from uh, Serbia, former Yugoslavia. And when I came here, my dad, who's now 98, uh, lives in my house in Arlington. Don't, don't feel bad for him. He's doing just fine. The, the, but he says, who's your boss? <laughs> and I said, and I had to think about it, right? So short of me, like, embezzling some funds from the deposit insurance fund, I mean, what is cause? Like, what, how do you get fired for cause? Like, you've got to do something egregious, right? And, um, and really, when you think about it, I tried to explain to my dad, well, I was appointed by the President of the United States. I was confirmed by the Senate. And by the way, the director uh, is one vote, mm -hmm. and the chairman is another vote. So you get two votes, unlike, for example, the FTC, where you get one vote, yeah. and oh. then the person can be made into chairman, which uh. is what happened. Uh, so this, this requires two votes. Um, and, uh, and then I was like, but, and I respond to Congress because I have to testify, but really, who is the boss, right? Mm -hmm. It's like in the traditional sense, who is your boss? And then I took a position that, you know, the, the American public is my boss. So I need to do what, what makes sense for the banking industry and the consumers and the communities they serve. And so I, I embarked on, on, on different um, agenda items vis-a-vis -vis that. What I do think is interesting, uh, your question about the presidential powers Part of the reason that I stepped down when I did is when I realized that um, we can actually go all the way to the Supreme Court on who controls the board at the agency. And I, I don't, um, I'm not of the opinion that it should be this way or that way. I am of the, of the opinion that you follow the law and you follow the, the precedent, right? That's, you got to have some certainty in our system. And the reason that our jurisprudence system function and the reason that these agencies function is because you basically uh, you follow the, the rule of law. It is when we start to kind of uh, take that 
rule of law and say, well, maybe, you know, maybe it should be this. I don't know. I like it this way. Mm. Um, so what I did, I basically followed 89 years of precedent at the FDIC, how it was set up, uh, what, what powers are rested with the chairman versus the board members. And, um, you know, and if should Congress decide that's not the case, I'm fine with that, too. So I just say that we got to follow what is the rule of the law, because, you know, for better or for worse, I had an opportunity to grow up in a different system. And what differentiates the United States of America from just about any other system, short of our neighbors to the north, um, is the reliability on these institutions. Everything else can be kind of in shambles. Congress can have like whatever, 13, 14 percent approval rating. But you actually believe that the agencies are somewhat nonpartisan mm-hmm. and you believe that their mandates should be um, consistent over time. It is when you get, we go back to your first question, how is the system? It is when you get people who kind of vastly change the course of those agencies and make them less accountable and transparent that we have a problem. Yeah. Well, um, you said you're, when you were FDIC chairman, your, your bosses were the American people. I'm glad to reunite, reunite you with many of your former bosses. Uh, we have not that much they time for like questions. They look like mean bosses, some of but them. We do, have, we do have a little time. We have microphones in the room, right? Okay, we got a mic both on both sides. Uh, okay, so we'll start here. Hi there. I was just wondering if you've discussed digital currency or how that factors into this and what's your take on what direction we're going overall with that? Yeah, yes. Question. When we were at the FDIC, when I was at the FDIC, they're still there. But when I was at the FDIC, I thought it was important to take a look at the digital currency with like a fresh lens. Um, what we didn't want to call it was currency because that would imply that it's money and somehow we would have to maybe insure it if banks held that as a currency per se. Um, we did develop a plan to deal with um, digital assets. We call them digital assets, um, partly because the U.S. government back then and to this day still doesn't have a co- coherent policy and a cohesive policy on different different agencies. It's a, if it's a security, if it's not a security, is it the currency, is it the product, is it the service, is it an offering? Um, so the idea was to allow banks uh, to hold them in custody, to hold digital assets in custody, just like any other custodial assets. We developed a roadmap. The, the easiest, the lowest hanging fruit was custodial services. The second we were going to take a look is at um, trading those assets and then how do banks deal with that. The third one was going to be how do banks use um, digital assets as collateral. So, you know, if you remember in 2008 when the property values, uh, real estate property values went down, some some borrowers were asked to pony up more money to secure their um, their loan, uh, you know, and the fluctuations in the digital assets um, value could kind of do the same thing if you're, if you're using it as collateral. And then the last, because it was the most difficult thing to, to deal with, was what do we do if the banks hold them on the, on the balance sheet? And then what kind of a risk weighting in terms of capital liquidity do you assign to those assets? Uh, and we were going to wait for the Basel III endgame to be done. They were going to deal in the Basel. They were going to deal with the, the, you know, the digital assets on the balance sheet. And then the question was, do we want to adopt something similar to that? Or you know, we didn't want to be too incongruous with what Basel does. But you know, the question was, how much do we have to follow that given what Basel is? So that was that was the game plan, and I think that game plan has been scrapped since. That's great. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Other questions? Here and back. Thank you very much, and, and thank you for taking time to speak with us. If you could make one change to our banking regulatory or legal environment, if you could wave a wand and it happened, what would it be? Oof. How powerful is that wand? As powerful as you want it to be. It can make people disappear. No, I'm kidding. 
joke, people joke. Okay, okay, okay. So you have to be like good about it. Okay. Um, the, you know, I will tell you this. I've got to go back and watch your confirmation hearing now. This was, no. um, the one thing I would change, and I have been at different angles and sides and facets of the of the regulatory system. You know, I was at the Fed during. I was a lawyer first in private practice, then I was at the Fed during the financial crisis, then I was on the Senate Banking Committee, then I was a GC of a regulated entity, then I was the head of an agency. Um, and now I'm back in private practice. So I kind of have seen it from different angles and all of that. And I am constantly perplexed about how uh, little um, rebuttal uh, regulated and supervised entities have and can exercise. Um, you know, you're constantly faced with kind of a bifurcation in how the bank sees itself and how the regulars. It doesn't happen all the time, but it's, it's quite common. And so the bank, you know, may see itself as we have really good management team. We should be rated, I don't know, two or one on the CAMELS rating, which is the highest ratings. And maybe the regular things, they should be rated two or three on the CAMELS rating. And how little you have as a supervised entity, how little power you have to actually challenge that effectively. You know, the appeals process is stacked against you. And I changed the appeals process when I was at the FDIC. That was changed back. And I'll, I'll give you the data points. And I didn't, you know, as I said, everybody in Washington takes the data points that work for them. I'm giving you objective data points from before I entered the FDIC. So this is, there was a uh, inspector general review of the appeals process back in the maybe 2012, I think, or I think the report came out in 14 or 15, but it covered the prior four years at each of the agencies, OCC, Fed, uh, FDIC. And I will, I will use rough numbers because I don't remember exactly, but there were about 20,000 exams that the FDIC has conducted over those four years. And of the 20,000 exams, I believe around 30 or 33 entities challenged their findings out of, of 20,000 exams. Of those, two were ruled I believe in banks' favor and one partially. Hmm. So we're talking about 2.5 exams out of 20,000, which, by the way, nobody even dared to challenge the findings. And so I do think it's it's really crucial in the United States in the system of government that's based on the rule of law, that's based on your ability to face your accuser and plead your case and you know have your day in court. That that court for the agencies does not exist. And you know what? It could, it could be that the bankers are wrong. They're, it could be that they're wrong all the time. Maybe they should be rated l lower. Maybe they should have, you know, some kind of a punishment for X, Y, Z. But they should be able to plead that. And it's not about whether the banks are good or bad or, you know, it's really about does the system that we have in place, the regulatory system, give them that. And I will say that you don't have, in my experience from these different facets of the system, you don't have a good way of pleading your case and availing yourself of what essentially should be a constitutional right. Uh, we're almost out of time, so last question, and really, really quick, uh, thinking ahead to the future, what's the most underrated issue today? That's to say, five, ten years from now, what's the issue we're going to say, no matter how much we thought about it today, we should have spent more time thinking about it? Um, data access. Hmm. You know, people will usually tell you what, what keeps you up at night and everybody gives you a standard is a response, which just in case you're wondering, and there's like a one of those New York Times crossword puzzles. It's usually cybersecurity, um, the, uh, which of course you should worry about. Nobody wants a hack in the system because it exposes you to all kinds of issues. But really, it's data. 
Um, and here's why. So you had, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that um, how, you know, folks inside the agencies were not aware that things were going on at Silicon Valley Bank, right? Um, when I came to the FDIC, and I knew this from before, it just became blatantly obvious once I was inside the agency, you know, we collect, they, 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 they're right there across the street, they collect data from uh, the banks quarterly. So the big data collection, it's called call report data. There's about 2,400 data fields that gets collected from large banks, about 1,200 data fields from smaller banks. Uh, and that call report data gets, um, for Q1, the bank is obligated to transmit that data by the end of uh, April. The FDIC will spend the, uh, the month of May analyzing the data. And sometimes around the middle of June, the FDIC will release that data in aggregation uh, and, and individual banks' data as well. And that's, going, that's called the quarterly banking profile, the QBP, and the FDIC will brief the public about this. Uh, but if you really think about it, when that gets released on, say, June 15th, that data is already old, right? So you're talking about the health of the industry from like two, three months ago at best, right? Mm -hmm. It's a snapshot in time on the 30th of, of, or 31st of March. And when you think, and, and, and so I, and then you can get data as an examiner, you can get data, you can ask the bank, you know, send me this data file, right? Mm -hmm. And the bank will do their best and they'll send you the data file. By the way, when examiners go in, they go in for the big exam. If you are a well-rated bank, meaning one or two on camels, you, the examiners go in every 18 months for the big exam. And then they'll go in for the specialized exams. But every 18 months for the big exam, if you're not a one or two on the camels rating, they go in every 12 months. So the access to data is really constrained because you're not, and, and, and <laughs> this is going to make you all depressed. And when they go in to examine the bank portfolio, like mortgages, say it's a mortgage exam, mm -hmm. they can't examine every single mortgage and all the paperwork backing up that they sample the portfolio. So when you talk about, you want to know what the health of the banking system or, or, or an individual bank, you really need to have better access to data. And so one of the things that I, I tried to do while we were on our way to doing it, um, we had something that we called rapid phase prototyping, which again, in Washington DC, you assigned these big phrases and people think it's more serious than it is. Really what it was, it was a Bloomberg terminal for banks and bank examiners, right? So an examiner would wake up, turn the computer on, you know, and the data, the same data they give us in the, in the, in call reports, then we would have access to the bank's API and the same data would be streamed oh. daily, morning and evening, twice a day, boom, boom, boom. And the examiner could use um, algorithms, you know, artificial uh, intelligence and machine learning, and they could basically analyze that bank's data compared to that bank in the past, other banks similarly situated, commercial real estate, deposits, anything. And so we had a competition um, to basically create this Bloomberg terminal. Uh, I, I, I did, I might have said, we should call it the McWilliams terminal. The, the, the uh, um, doesn't matter, we don't have a terminal. So we can call it whatever now, imaginary terminal it's now. But the, the idea was that we would invest um, in the development of this prototype, test it on nine entities because of the Administrative Procedures Act. You can go to 10. Uh, again, interesting artificial numbers that the Congress put in place. But And then we were going to see how it works, and then we were going to have it system-wide um, on a voluntary basis. We were not going to mandate, but I think the banks would have seen the benefit in this as well, and it's not an additional burden. In, in fact, it would reduce the burden of the quarterly production. Mm. And uh, one of the competitors that won the final, um, what would have been an award, and it ended up being canceled after I left, basically had this language in the, in the prototype that they developed. 
they were going to monitor daily in the system deposit inflow and outflow and they were going to monitor for the interest rate risk and so that model got that got that rapid phase prototyping project got scrapped when i left and i was thinking we were going to invest i think about 5 million dollars with each of the four uh, finalists so that we can own the product so it's not a product for hire it's uh, the product is owned by the by the fdic and then work uh, enter into uh, a contract with them to develop whoever wins mm -hmm. and we were going to have that uh, available to our examiners so i do think access to data well um everybody please join me in thanking chairman McLeod. Oh, thank you thank you This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Adlaw Center.